Well, greetings from Jerusalem. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, whatever time zone in the world you are watching this webinar series. My name is Barry Dennison. I'm the Vice President of Operations here at the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem. And I'm very excited about today's guest and the information you're going to receive and learn about the Mideast and what's happening here in this world. I've known Near Bombs for several years. We've communicated various times. Um, and so, Nir, welcome to this week's broadcast of the ICEJ webinar. Good to be here. Tell us about your function at the Mosia Diane Center and give the website so people can find you. I'm sure they'll want to after our interview. Uh, that's great, uh, and thank you very, and very good to be here. Uh, the Moshe Bayan uh, Center is uh, one of Israel's leading uh, think tanks when it comes to Mideast affairs. Uh, this is a part of uh, the University of Tel Aviv, and it is uh, also the oldest one. It's been established uh, uh, in the 1950s, uh, the beginning as a, uh, an arm of the Ministry of Defense, and then later on, as an independent uh, research, uh, academic research institute. Uh, what's unique uh, at Dayan is that we are very much connected to the universities, the Middle East uh, and history, Middle East history department. Um, so on the one hand, uh, this is very much an academic uh, institution. We produce books, we have a number of uh, publications um, in, in both uh, Hebrew, English, and in Arabic as well. Uh, we managed uh, one of the largest uh, press archives of Middle East press uh, in the world. And on the other hand, uh, and certainly more in the recent years, we also function as a, an institution that works with the region, uh, not just in research capacity. And I have just created uh, this year uh, a new program for regional cooperation. And we began uh, uh, work uh, with institutions throughout the region. That's something that came uh, uh, the more visible following the Abraham Accords in 2020. Uh, I'm actually on my way uh, this week to Abu Dhabi to uh, conduct the first uh, conference in regional cooperation uh, with representatives from 10 different uh, countries, and even something that is jointly funded, something that we have not seen uh, uh, before. Um, and most of our work now engages really outside the university in the context of regional cooperation, working with colleagues from the region um, institution, think tanks, policy institutions, uh, and also civic society. Well, thank you for sharing that. And that's, uh, for me personally, very interesting. Um, I'm sure it is for our guests today. Um, our title for this webinar is uh, Mideast Update, Energy, Politics, and Security. And in these last few years, the, the whole question of energy has had a major shift here in the Mideast. So why don't you start addressing that and we'll range forward. Well, perhaps one way to start is to speak about objectives and subjectives when it comes to the Middle East. Now, the Middle East has, has not been a quiet region. It still is not. Uh, we've seen in the last decade and a half, uh, the Arab Spring, which resulted uh, number of other seasons, uh, including with uh, uh, failed states, uh, Turkey, Syria, uh, Yemen. Uh, we've seen uh, countries like Iraq that are uh, uh, really struggling 
Um, and uh, part of that actually started because of drought. Uh, Syria, the Syrian war uh, did not start just because of uh, climate change, uh, but part of what triggered some of the events was a series of events following some years of droughts and then um, people, hundreds of thousands of them had to leave their villages, move into the cities. The country did not have an answer for them or solutions for them. And that's one of the things that prompted some of the unrest uh, that afterwards developed into the Syrian war. Uh, more recently, when we speak about Ukraine, we've seen a whole energy crisis in Europe. Of course, the Middle East had uh, seen that uh, for quite some time. Um, we, you will still have uh, cities, including major cities, uh, that has only uh, between two and four hours of electricity uh, in an average home per day. And they still rely on... Uh, generators and sometimes other sources or uh, uh, really on uh, a whole different lifestyle that I think for a Western context we're not familiar with. Um, Energy has been important also because this has been the the, the source of income for many of the richer countries and uh, we're now gradually been trying to move sort of beyond this and we've seen uh, certainly there for the American uh, viewers uh, they, they remember the dynamics between U.S. and the oil-producing countries in an attempt uh, to try to bring the, the gas prices down. Um, uh, and we have had gas discoveries here. And that's certainly very relevant to Israel, but more recently also to Lebanon and to Egypt. And now this is moving again beyond oil. And then the issue is how are we going to move some of these gas to other places? And we're trying to move them to Europe. And the Turks stand in the middle and says, well, you know, we want it in our part, and we have some issues with Cyprus and Greece, and we don't allow you to do the East Mediterranean. Uh, and all of that is energy-related conflict. So energy becomes important uh, because it is a source of, of, of livelihood, but it's also a source of potential collaboration. There is an understanding here. This is why I began with objectives and subjectives. Uh, the, the objective challenges that involve uh, climate change, that involves energy, uh, are issues that needs to be dealt with. The subjective ones involving ideology, extremism, all the radical factions that operate in the Middle East, the terrorist groups uh, that have been dominating some of the politics. They're the ones who destroy the pipelines. They're the ones who destroy other things as well. Yeah. Uh, and the Abraham Accords uh, and the idea of having regional cooperation, which includes, for example, some solutions in the realm of energy as well, are about let's try to be pragmatic and deal with the objective and try to find ways to distance the subjectives, the ide- the ideologues, the extremists, because they're not going to improve the livelihood of people in the region and in the Middle East. And, and all of that uh, is now an incentive for the more pragmatic partners to potentially come together. And that's the broader context of the whole energy debate in the Middle now, the the energy world is changing because of many of these issues, the whole climate uh, concern issue, the discoveries of gas that uh, are now several years uh, reality here in Israel. Um, and, you know, as you say, these improvements with the regional uh, accords, and it's amazing. You know, a few years ago I was in... Um, uh, the Emirates and involved in a meeting there of leaders from the region. So uh, it's exciting to see the the possibility of some very positive changes. 
Yeah, Barry, if I may, I, I'll give you a recent example. Uh, yeah, a few months ago, Israel and Lebanon signed uh, a border agreement. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult thing to say that Israel and Lebanon signed an agreement. Lebanon is an enemy state. Uh, Hezbollah, uh, which is a, a, a militia, really a military uh, force that is larger than the official Lebanese army and then dominated by Iran. Um, they, they're dominating much of the Lebanese politics. It was very difficult uh, uh, to, to have an arrangement with them. And of course, this agreement was signed in a very awkward way, so it's not going to be a direct agreement. But why was it signed? Lebanon needs this agreement more than Israel. This is a maritime agreement that codifies the maritime border. Israel and Lebanon do not have a recognized border in the context of the two countries. Lebanon does not recognize the UN decision uh, regarding the border. Um, but Lebanon also has oil, sorry, gas fields. Um, and these gas fields are never going to be developed if there is still a border dispute. And so Lebanon needs uh, uh, this agreement in a way more than Israel. Um, and now if there's going to be a combination of the Lebanese fields and the Israeli fields. And now you have enough gas to potentially export through a pipeline that potentially can go to Turkey and to Europe. There are different scenarios there as well. Then we can see something very interesting uh, that can bring uh, some prosperity, uh, certainly with Lebanon that very much needs it, um, but also that can be a peg of creating some degree of stability because now you have different parties with interests. So actually, in this context, Israel and Lebanon potentially using uh, the, the same pipeline to export gas. That is a way in where the energy politics can actually pave a way to stability. This is very much still a vision. I'm not yet sure if it's going to be implemented. It's certainly not very soon. Um, Lebanon is a very tough case, uh, really mainly because of the involvement of Hezbollah, uh, uh, again, dominated by Iran. But if you're looking at the pragmatics of this, uh, then that's the direction that the more moderate, pragmatic players in the Middle East, including the colleague that you have mentioned in the Gulf, that's the direction they're trying to proceed. Yeah. Excellent. Um, well, let let me shift gears a little bit. And, and recently, we've seen some political changes, political instability, restability. I mean, you mentioned briefly Syria has been in a state of political instability, civil chaos um, for a little over a decade now. Um, we recently saw elections in Turkey, and from as a as a layperson observing, I think there was some surprise that it came to a runoff. Um, talk about what's happening politically in the region and how that can can add to or detract from stability and cooperation. Well, the region is now in the recovery phase following over a decade of something that started as the Arab Spring, as I mentioned before, and that developed to be one of the most difficult decades that the Middle East had seen. The Middle East has been a relatively stable region politically. You know, For the four decades prior, uh, sure, we have seen a number of wars. Israel had seen them, but we've seen a degree of stability because we've had people like Gaddafi, like Mubarak, like Hafez did, and then Bashar al-Assad in Syria, you had these dictators, monarchs, royals, who have been there and uh, embodied sort of the past and the future of their country. Uh, all of that 
began to collapse uh, with the Arab Spring that had, uh, for a time began to create some sort of a domino effect. Um, and in some ways, Syria has been kind of the last standing. Bashar Assad had remained. Uh, but that's not the Syria that we knew. And just because you, you've asked about this, and then again, and just to, to give kind of a lazy version for a second, uh, Syria uh, was, was a country of 23 million Syrians. About 12% of them Alawites were actually the ones controlling the country. If you uh, take then, you know, 12 years forward since the beginning of, uh, of the war, you see a very different Syria. Uh, first of all, they're probably between 16 and 17 million, perhaps even less, Syrians now. About 7 million Syrians, mostly Sunni, by the way, had found themselves out of the country as refugees. A uh, similar number found themselves refugees within their own countries. And when you're looking at the territory that Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, controls, it's around, uh, uh, let's say, two-thirds of the country. Uh, and we have uh, some parts in the north that are still controlled by the opposition, other parts that are still controlled by Turkey, and a very significant part that is controlled by the Kurds. And we have a few other points that are controlled. Uh, there is one point still that is controlled by the Americans. But within uh, this less than two-thirds of the country that remains uh, in, in the hands of Assad, uh, he controls effectively a much smaller uh, territory, and the majority of the others are controlled either by the Russians or by the Iranians, who are also very much involved um, in the security agencies, uh, in policing, and then some of that also by bringing militias that ended up uh, leaving and staying in, in, in Syria, bringing more Shia um, and other foreigners, and really you have a, a, a kaleidoscope and the country that once used to be called Syria today is very different. Um, in Turkey, the situation is different. You actually have a, a degree of stability still kept, uh, but you have uh, Erdogan, President Erdogan, really changing course um, in a way, trying to come back to the same policies he advocated for over 20 years ago, where minimum conflicts with the neighbors, uh, trying to set, look at Turkey as a more friendly country that is able to uh, create relations with others. Uh, and then following uh, a very difficult uh, uh, you know, decade and a half of relations uh, with Israel, also uh, rapprochement, but this is not just with Israel. Um, this is happening also with uh, the Gulf. Uh, it is beginning to happen with uh, Syria. And this comes from his joining to the more pragmatic axis, saying, you know, we need to begin to heal the Middle East. I think part of this broader perspective looks at two vectors in the Middle East. Uh, I, in one of my articles, I called them the axis of resistance and the axis of renaissance. The axis of resistance is the one we were accustomed to in the Middle East. Radical groups that are trying to win, of course, you have a win-lose uh, uh, perspective. We need to fight, we need to win, uh, uh, we need to conquer, sometimes at any cost. We've seen the, this groups like the Islamic State, ISIS, um, the most radical of all, Remember those horrifying pictures uh, uh, of what we've seen uh, uh, um, in the uh, orange uh, cages and, and, and with so many atrocities. Uh, on the other side, you have the camp led by the pragmatists, certainly with the more sort of leadership of the Gulf, saying, look, uh, we need to begin to heal the Middle East. We cannot 
uh, we have to actually do actively work against uh, these radicals. These are actually the main enemies, and we need to um, uh, create a win-win scenario. And part of that is we need to begin to engage the partners in the region, including Israel, which is what is the context that eventually also helped the Abraham Accords. Excellent, excellent. Um, while we're on the concept, the, the topic of politics, the Abraham Accords, um, what do you see as, as a possible or even probable future of advancement of that accords, other nations that there may be dialogue that may become a part of that? So I've been engaged in this type of dialogue for over a decade and a half. Uh, you and I have met in the context of the work in Syria, and, and sometimes I mentioned that uh, since 1948, when Israel was established until the beginning of the war, you can count perhaps on one hand the number of Syrians who have ever been to Israel. And I can count on many more hands the number of Syrian guests I had for Shabbat dinner uh, in the last decade. And I can add to that uh, colleagues and friends from Saudi, from Sudan, from Iran, uh, from a number of other countries. Um, that's part of uh, uh, the, the engagement. This is, of course, very anecdotal, but it's also to say that we are speaking. Um, I just mentioned that, that this week I'm heading to uh, Abu Dhabi uh, to a conference uh, with colleagues from 10 different countries, and now we can do it more publicly, uh, including with countries which do not have diplomatic relations. It's an important point. Uh, I very much hope that the Abraham Accords will uh, continue to expand, but I also don't think this is the right and the most important uh, uh, goal or even question. The Abraham Accord is one framework involving a particular uh, sequence uh, uh, of, of, of countries that has happened in a continent of certain political context. Uh, many things have happened following the Abraham Accords. Our planes are able to fly now uh, uh, above Saudi Arabia and above Oman. Uh, we've had meetings, some of them were public. Of course, there are many who were not public uh, with many uh, other countries. And we've seen some reports about some of the public meetings with some other countries. Uh, there are 10 different countries uh, that the Israeli foreign ministry defines a sort of uh, countries as a target for further engagements. We have seen Turkmenistan uh, renewing uh, relations. We've seen some other embassies. Uh, and I'm quite convinced that if and when the Saudis will end up also renewing relationship, they don't go into quality Abraham Accords. Yeah. And so the, in my thinking, it's important to advance the process of dialogue in the region. It's important to advance uh, uh, the, the progress that we have in different arrangements. And it's not uh, an all or nothing formula. Uh, we are talking about the axis of renaissance. Israel needs to be part of it. Israel needs to engage and contribute. And we also need to show eventually that to the average person from Jordan, uh, uh, from Morocco, from the Gulf, uh, of course, our Palestinian neighbors, uh, extremely important as well, that this partnership agenda actually helps improve their lives. We need to show that we are able to work together to create a better Middle East, to bring the people on board that we need to abandon the old ways uh, of conflict uh, and, and resistance and move to a more of a win-win formula that focuses on pragmatism and improving one's life um, here in the region. It's going to take some time, 
but these examples, some of the progress we've seen show that we have at least a chance of people that's willing to work with us on these issues. Uh, this is not yet the majority. We are very far away uh, uh, from convincing everyone. Uh, there's still enough radicalization. Uh, we'll have more conversations in the future uh, on news that are not so positive. But we have a core of people uh, and certainly brave leaders who understand that this is the direction we need to pursue. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, personally, and I'm sure with our, our audience, our constituents, the idea of improvement in relations is something that we Christians pray for, praying for the peace of Jerusalem and the peace of Israel. Um, so that's the possibility. I know it's it's a long process, but that's that's very encouraging to us as we continue to work towards that goal. A related topic, um, and living here, I understand that within the relationships with Jordan um, kind of have their up and down moments. What's currently happening in terms of Israel with Jordan? There is a valid peace treaty, but where are relations? Jordan is a very important country and a very important ally and has been so since the very beginning. The trajectory of relations with Jordan uh, has actually been broadly positive. Even in the time we, we do not have peace, the militaries knew how to work together. They all understood that we actually have a shared interest. It has to do with the very particular composition uh, of the Hashemite kingdom of uh, Jordan. Uh, uh, Jordan uh, is uh, a diverse country and, and it has... Uh, uh, different populations that have emerged uh, from actually a common past. Uh, you know, for us, uh, we have to remember that uh, back in the old days, uh, some of the Israelite kingdom actually uh, resided in Jordan of today. When I take uh, my students to tours in Jordan, I, I go to show them uh, how our histories are so very much uh, connected. The Nabataeans were in Jordan and in Israel of uh, uh, today. It was in many ways sort of the same kingdom. The relationship we've had with the Hashemites were always very, very good. However, the majority of the population of uh, Jordan is of Palestinian descent, and that often creates uh, uh, more uh, tension because the Palestinian file uh, is, is uh, of course, not yet uh, sorted. Um, every time when there are tension with the Palestinians and over the Temple Mount, and Jordanians are also uh, um, the custodians of this uh, uh, important uh, uh, site. Uh, we've seen additional tensions sometimes uh, from the perspective of this government, uh, there were mistakes that were made. Um, and the Jordanian kingdom is trying to always calm things down. They do not want to use uh, uh, these uh, types of dynamics as an attempt, as a, as a reason for further confrontations. Um, but the, the Palestinian dimension uh, is there. We had uh, just a few uh, weeks ago a very difficult example where a Jordanian member of parliament was caught. Uh, in the border uh, with no less than 150 guns and two machine guns and uh, lots of uh, 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 money and gold that was not going to charity. Um, and eventually he's now uh, in prison. We had uh, just last week a Jordanian uh, member of uh, parliament uh, uh, taking the stand and praising uh, Mohammed Salah, the uh, terrorist that killed uh, three uh, Israeli soldiers who came from Egypt, an Egyptian officer. Yes. Um, and, and, and of course, this is not the official position of the king, uh, but you see that sentiment. You see books like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion 
uh, or even Mein Kampf in Jordan, unfortunately, very often. Part of what uh, is tried to uh, be done is to show that the partnership agenda again works. Israel provides water to Jordan. Maybe Jordanians may not know that if Israel would not do it, they may not have waters in their faucets. Um, we're trying now to work on two other big projects with the, uh, our partners in the Gulf. One of them is to uh, create an energy facility, solar energy, that will also uh, create, be connected to uh, water. So it's going to be water coming from Israel, energy coming uh, from Jordan through a solar facility in the desert. And then again, creating this exchange uh, and a win-win. And then another uh, important project, which is uh, the Jordan Gateway, an area in the north that's going to be accessible uh, to work also from Israel and will be a free zone and will bring additional factories and, and manufacturing that can afterwards come from Israel, uh, you know, back to other parts of the uh, of the world. Um, and that can create sort of economic cooperation. It's important that we'll succeed. Eventually, these agreements and the idea of the cooperation agenda will succeed when we'll be able to show the average person in Jordan uh, or anywhere else that we've done something good to improve their life. Yes. Um, easier said than done. And we need to, in order to do that, you need the innovation and you need the support. And you also need to convince uh, the governments to move forward and overcome still the uh, axis of resistance that constantly puts uh, obstacles uh, in the way of these very important initiatives. Well, this is all very interesting, and I love your your terminology, the access of resistance and the access of renaissance. Um, and as you're talking about the need to, to help the population of these countries learn the benefits that will come from this cooperation, I'm reminded when uh, my wife and I were in the, the hospital in Naharia, um, and uh, we were able to interview some of the injured Syrians that through the Good Neighbor Project, she had actually treated when she was in Syria, and then the IDF brought them out, brought them to the hospital. And one of the statements that struck me, and it to me it kind of epitomizes what you're saying, this Syrian man in his mid-30s, um, through an interpreter, was saying, my whole life, I was taught that the Jews and the Christians are my enemies and want to kill me. Today, I know that I would be dead if it were not for the Jews and Christians, that they are our friends. Um, and and that, that change of sentiment is, is what I hear you talking about in a less, less uh, acute, less critical than war and life and death, but that kind of benefit. Um, so again, I find this very encouraging. Um, shifting just a little bit, you made reference, and I'm not sure how much our, our uh, audience and constituents are aware of what occurred on the border with Egypt. Um, maybe you could describe that, since it, you referenced the, the, the Jordanian parliamentarian praising that, and give us a brief update on the, the political status in Egypt and Egypt vis-a-vis -vis Israel. We have a peace agreement with Egypt uh, since uh, really 1979, uh, and uh, the relationships, broadly speaking, uh, are, are are good, but they are it's considered to be a cold peace, meaning relationships that do not involve the people. They are mostly kept on political level uh, and uh, security and military level. Uh, there was some fear that the, the 
transition region from the time of Mubarak, uh, particularly after the, uh, President Morsi, who was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, took office. Um, this will roll it back, but we survived this, and I think Egypt survived this, and the, uh, President Sisi, who used to be a military general, uh, uh, very much appreciates this and even attempts to gradually open up to a certain degree. However, in Egypt, just like in other places, uh, you don't have always the population uh, uh, online with this. Uh, there were a few incidents, uh, and, and one that occurred uh, at this point two weeks ago, uh, where uh, Muhammad Salah, who was an Egyptian border uh, police officer uh, who knew the region well, uh, decided to uh, take a gun and crossing the border uh, and was able to uh, uh, take down and kill uh, two uh, soldiers, uh, including a female soldier at the position uh, next to the border. Um, and then later on, kill another person in the course of uh, the exchange of uh, fire. Uh, this has been a very difficult uh, incident on a number of levels. Uh, there was also uh, already a commission of, uh, of investigations. Uh, it seemed that some protocols, uh, IDF protocols, security protocols, were not uh, followed, which had, uh, uh, ended up being very tragic for, for those who were, had lost their lives. But it's also, of course... Uh, just the perspective that an official in uniform uh, would take a, a, a weapon given by the country and go uh, uh, and, and, and do something like this. It's, it's been very difficult. Of course, as usual, lessons will be learned. Uh, that's not going to help much for, for those, the families of those who uh, had just lost uh, their lives. That's not an event that changes our relations with Egypt. But this is another reminder that even when we have an agreement with the leadership of a given country, it doesn't mean the people are behind it. The real work uh, is still uh, above us, uh, sorry, in front of us. We, 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 we have a lot of work to do to convince the people uh, that this idea of partnership uh, is the right idea, that we are, we can be friends, as you said before. Uh, you know, I've had many conversations with Syrians and, and I've heard this, the other parts of it. Uh, it's not just that the now... Uh, the Arabs were the ones who are killing us, and the Jews are the ones who are treating us and saving our lives. Um, and at some point, we realize that when we look at this axis of Renaissance, those who believe in the agenda of partnership are not Jews on the one hand or Christians along with them and, and Muslims on the other. Yeah. We actually have radical uh, uh, Jews and radical Muslims and radical Christians. Yeah. Uh, and we have people who believe that we need to work together, who are also Jews, Muslims, and Christians willing to work together. Uh, and understanding that this is really not a, a, a religious or an ethnic type of a line, but really an ideological. Absolutely. Absolutely. Complete agreement there. Um, jumping back to when you talked about energy, you briefly mentioned the natural gas and the possibility of Egypt benefiting. What's, what's happening there? What's the prospective future there? So... At this point, Israel is able to produce uh, about 1,000 billion cubic uh, uh, tons of gas. It's an important, uh, it's, a, it's a significant number. We may be able to produce more. It numbers that covers our consumption with some ability of exporting. Uh, it, of course, uh, gas became uh, a hot commodity following the Ukrainian crisis. Um, 
Israel does not know how to liquidify the gas in order to bring it. And actually what Israel does is bring it to Egypt and then it is done there and then it moves to Europe. Um, that's There's some advantages and some disadvantages uh, for this model. It certainly helps the Israeli-Egyptian uh, uh, relations. And this connects to this broader discussion about the potential pipeline that may uh, uh, make these things easier. Uh, again, and here it, it can only work uh, if there is a financial uh, model that can support it, then it can certainly be stronger if it can also work with Lebanon. Egypt also has gas fields, and some of them needs to be further developed. So the Middle East in this context is now becoming more of a gas exporting uh, uh, hub. Uh, Egypt's economy can certainly need the infusion. It certainly helps, very useful for the Israeli uh, economy. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we have a natural, a regional gas forum, uh, which uh, Egypt and Israel, of course, are, are, are members. That's another way of bringing senior officials from the various countries on an issue that bounds them further together. Uh, there's some talks about Turkey, who wants to become a part of this, uh, and really because it wants to be an energy hub for, for moving uh, gas and, and, and oil with pipes. That's a good location for this. And part of the discussion is, okay, the Turkey may be able to be a part of this. But Turkey, first of all, needs to sort out some of the issues uh, it has, uh, particularly with Greece and with Cyprus. And it may be that the energy uh, impetus uh, would actually serve as the potential gate uh, for uh, uh, doing something very different politically, just because it's an interest, because it's a win-win. Turkey very much wants to be a part of it. Uh, the, the regional partners would not let her get much closer if it's not going to change its policies. But if it's so, then it can potentially join kind of a win-win type of a scenario. Of course, there's also competition there. Um, but that's at this point, uh, actually, it's another great example how energy can help further ferment uh, uh, the agenda of partnership in the region. Excellent. Well, Nir, um, all of this that you're sharing for me is very encouraging. Um, Good news, it may just be at the beginning, but uh, holds out the hope for a renaissance, uh, as you say, here in the region. Um, but let's return briefly before we wrap up to the question of security. And you had mentioned uh, Russia and Iranian being on, on the ground in Syria. Um, living here in Israel, I regularly get the updates of the Syrian Air Force making some attacks on Iranian weapons or southern Syria. Can you give us a brief update on on the reality of what's happening there and perhaps even the prospects for the future? I would say that this part is not uh, an optimistic note. Uh, in, uh, in Syria, the Syrian army had lost... Uh, much of its ability, you know, throughout the war, and and that vacuum was quickly filled uh, with Syrian Russian support, mainly from the air, but really with Iranian penetration from the ground. And what happens later is that uh, you have some of the senior officers becomes loyalist to either one side or the other, um, and uh, the actual uh, military and much of the security uh, facilities are now actually not even being managed uh, by the leadership uh, or the command of the, the Syrians, but rather by the commands of the Iranians. There are actually military bases, both 
Syrians, sorry, Russians and uh, Iranians uh, that are uh, in, in uh, autonomous enough and, and Syrians are not allowed to enter there unless with uh, Iranian or Russian uh, permission. Uh, at this point, I would also say, unfortunately, the Russians, of course, have become in the last year busy with other fronts. The Iranians are winning uh, and they take uh, uh, more of control. And this is also why the Israeli Air Force is very busy, constantly bombing the Iranian target. The Syrian border before the war was a very stable border. You had the Syrian military guarding the border, not allowing other elements uh, to come close to the border. Uh, what we've seen throughout the war uh, is that other elements, uh, including Fisbala, uh, like Fisbala, Syria and other militias came and the uh, border in Lebanon today seems actually much more similar to the border in Syria, where elements not controlled by the country and that they're there very close to us. That's certainly a course of concern, a course of friction. And Israel actually is engaged in active war with Iranian forces uh, on Syrian soil. We, uh, once every month or so, uh, we hear reports uh, about Iranian military officers or, or uh, the Quds Brigade officers that were actually killed in an Israeli attack. What are they doing there? They're fighting. They're, they're managing forces. Israel is fighting directly with Iran uh, for actually close to eight years. The first time we've killed an Iranian general, uh, Mehdadi, was uh, in September of 2015. Wow. Well, to our friends out there, as you can see, the, the Mideast is, remains a... Uh a region of vast potential, and yet the potential of vast conflict in some areas an intense conflict. So, uh, Nir, I want to thank you very much for this update. Uh, your website is nirbombs.com, um, and it's an excellent resource uh, tool. So thank you, Nir, and thank you, all of, uh, all of you who are participating, watching this website. And let us all remember to pray for the peace of Israel and the peace of this whole region at this crucial time. Greetings from Jerusalem. Shalom.